All right, so my topic is the full gospel of the kingdom. And just to put this in context, some statistics. We are a charismatic church. We practice and believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we are similar to a lot of Pentecostal churches and right through to charismatic Catholics. Broadly, this is described as the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And this part of global Christianity was 6% in 1980, and by 2020 was 25%. Another quote, by 1992, the numbers of Pentecostals and Charismatics had grown to over 410 million and now comprised 24.2% of world Christianity. And this is a guy called Ralph Martin. My research has led me to make a bold statement. In all of human history, no other non-political, non-militaristic, voluntary human movement has grown as rapidly as the Pentecostal charismatic movement in the last 25 years. And then another guy, researcher today, one in four Christians in the world identifies as Pentecostal charismatic, with Pentecostalism growing at roughly four times the rate of the world's population itself. So you may think, and it's probably statistically true in in North America, the church is shrinking compared to the national population, but around the world, that's not the case at all. And, you know, analysts, they talk about how the majority world was offered liberation theology, but, the, but they chose the Pentecostals instead. And uh, so we are part of a sort of global plague that is spreading through Christianity, and although in some ways, you know, you might think that the gospel and those who believe in it are shrinking, but actually this movement, uh, if things just carry on, we're slowly taking, taking over. And um, so the question is, why would this brand of Christianity be growing and sort of eating out the, the middle of the rest of Christianity and growing globally in terms of world missions? And I want to suggest it's because we preach the full gospel. And so that's why this topic has its relevance. And Wilson is so wise that he chose it. <laughs> so what has gone wrong with the gospel? Why would some parts of the church actually be slowly losing effectiveness? And so I'm going to just do some name dropping of credible theologians in, in the world today, uh, just to show you that I'm not on a lonely, lunatic fringe. Um, so there's a guy called Scott McKnight, Northern Baptist Seminary, very widely respected. Another guy called Matthew Bates, Quincy University. And then they are quite influenced by N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican, evangelical, charismatic bishop in England. Um, and then also quite influential is a guy that was a vineyard pastor in Australia. I met him then. We became friends, and he's now the dean of the London School of Theology. And all of these guys in their books are basically saying what I'm going to be telling you today. And if you wanted to you know, read about it from those guys, you could. And so I'm not alone. I'm not right on the edge of something. And the issue is that a... Reduced gospel produces powerless Christianity. And so we really have to be clear. 
You know, the gospel we preach actually is not exactly the same as the gospel that's preached in large parts of evangelicalism today. All right, so I'm going to begin with the, the atonement, which is how we understand the death of Jesus. And here's a book that I can wave at you, um, Atonement and the Kingdom, get it from Amazon, and it's authored by six authors from USA, UK, South Africa, and Ethiopia, and Thomas Lyons, you might have heard of him, he's one of the authors, he's a vineyard scholar um, here in the United States. And the thing we had to address was debates out there about what is called penal substitution. And that's the theory of the atonement that when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. And so we don't have to be judged and condemned, but God can forgive us. And people started saying this gives a picture of God, that he's an angry God, that he's a cosmic child abuser, and we don't need this doctrine of the atonement. And what we decided is that you can't take penal substitution out of the Bible because it's there. You must articulate it rather than caricature it, which is a lot of what's going on in the criticism. But we also decided that the problem is that view of the atonement has been uh, exalted as the only gospel there is to preach. And while it's true, it's not the whole gospel. And so he has a new big word to learn. It's called reductionism. And that's where you shrink the gospel down into what may be true, but it's not really the whole gospel. And there's a whole lot of stages uh, in the history of, of the church where this has happened. And one of them particularly was when Calvin, in his argument with the Catholics, said that miracles and charismatic gifts had ceased. And so for hundreds of years, Protestant evangelical preachers don't talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't happen anymore. And, you know, that leads to a pretty powerless church. So what is the problem in reducing the full gospel down to just one little part of it? And this is a quote out of one of my books. It is not that what is being affirmed, believed, and confessed is wrong in itself. The problem is when elements are reduced and then elevated to such an extent that the truth they represent is presented as the whole truth. Then, when that small, though important, element of the truth is communicated as the gospel, it is not only less than the whole truth, but in a certain sense becomes untruth, not the truth. And so, the gospel that's kind of been... Uh, Reduced and, and the one that you hear a lot goes like this. Jesus died on the cross so that I can have my sins forgiven so that when I die, I will go to heaven. Now, every word in that sentence is true. But it's not the whole truth. And notice, it's I can have my sins forgiven so that when I die, I can go to heaven. It's quite me-centered. You know, what, is, what about God's plan for humanity that when you get saved, you sign up for, and you're part of 
the person who is part of God's great mission in the world. And it's not actually about you. It's about God and what he wants to do. And when it also is a form of evangelism, where you just must pray the sinner's prayer and really believe, and you have this sort of legal transaction that your sins are now taken by Jesus and his righteousness is given to you, and then you're done. It doesn't really matter how you behave, what you do for the rest of your life, you're saved and you've got to go to heaven when you die. And, you know, maybe that's putting it in an extreme way, but in a lot of Christianity today, that's become the story. So, here are some quotes from these clever guys that I introduced you to. This, I'm just covering my back here. So, N.T. Wright, for some people, the gospel has shrunk right down to a statement about Jesus' death and its meaning and a prayer with which people accept it. Or Scott McKnight, we are so singularly focused on the personal plan of salvation and how we get saved that we eliminate the story of Israel and the story of Jesus altogether. Jesus believed that the kingdom of God was breaking into history and that he was the center of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming this event was the single consistent meaning of the gospel. There's one and only one gospel and it was preached by Jesus, by Paul, and by Peter. And that was the gospel about the coming of the kingdom of God. Have you heard about the kingdom of God in this church? Do they talk about it enough? All right, so. Um, now, let's start with where it has been shrunk down and say that's good, and then let's expand it like a file that you are, you know, um, decompressing in your computer. You do that, don't you? You get a download and then you go extract. Yes? And then it becomes 10 files. You think, gee, this is a good deal. So, let's extract. So, first of all, has the cross itself been shrunk? So that it's not just that we don't have the rest, but we, even, even the core that we have is like too small. So let me just explain how that works. In especially Paul's writings, there are at least five different words and metaphors he uses to describe the saving power of the death of Jesus for us, which we believe and through which we are saved. And so first of all, the one that has become so much the gospel, penal substitution, Jesus took the judgment of God, it was, a, it was a courtroom scene, and it's true, the whole of Romans 1 to 3 is God is the great judge, and he's, he's accusing humanity, and then because Jesus died, we can be justified by faith. And it's a legal uh, model of the atonement, and they say that's, that's true. But then there's the Christus Victor view of the atonement. That as Jesus died and rose again, he defeated the powers of darkness and triumphed over them. And actually, for the first thousand years of church history, that was the understanding of the atonement. And it's the one widely represented in the New Testament. It's a military metaphor. It's a kingdom metaphor. The kingdom of God comes and clashes against the powers of darkness and triumphs over them and liberates us. And so... I think we should have that one too, don't you think? Yeah. 
Then there's the sacrifice metaphor that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the one perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And because of that, we can be cleansed from sin, not only just for a bit, but forever because of the finished work of Christ. The whole book of Hebrews is about that. And it's a temple metaphor. It's, it's, it happens in the sacrificial system, and Jesus is our sacrifice. I think we could have that one too, don't you think? Then there's the redemption model. And this would have been very well understood in the first century where Paul was preaching because of the practice of slaves buying their liberty or somebody buying their liberty at the slave market. And you could become a free citizen in somebody, if somebody paid a redemption price. And so Jesus died to redeem us, to pay the price by his blood so that we can be set free. I think we should have that one too. And then there's the reconciliation one. That because we are justified by faith, we are reconciled with God. And this is a family metaphor, and so beautifully expressed in the prodigal son and the father running down the road and embracing him and saying, welcome back into the family, and, you know, getting saved and believing in Jesus, you get welcomed into the family of God, don't you? So I think we should have that one too. So we want the atoning death of Jesus, but we want all of it. We don't just want one little sort of part of it. That may be true. So yes to the saving power of Jesus on the cross. But if you go to the place where Paul defines the gospel, he says, this is the gospel I preached. This is the gospel by which you were saved. And he defines it. For what I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture. Death and resurrection. So the Eastern Orthodox Church has always said the main point is the resurrection. The Western Church has tended to get focused on the death of Jesus. And they think we're a little bit unbalanced. And we probably are. It's not just that Jesus died, but it's also that Jesus rose. And so what is it about the resurrection that's so important? And there are two things about the resurrection. The first is the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus. So if you read the Gospels, all of them go out of their way to explain that he wasn't a spirit or a phantom. He was a, had a real body. He said a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones like you see that I have. And he said, is there something he had to eat? And he ate the meal and ghosts don't eat food. Ghosts can't be embraced, and they, they can't say, put your finger into my wound, and they can't make barbecues along the beach of the Sea of Galilee. So the real physicality of the risen body of Jesus, and yet they also explained that this body he had was no longer bound by space and time like we are, so, you know, all the doors are locked, they're sitting around, and suddenly, from the next second, Jesus is standing in the middle of the room. Now, if you'd been to somebody's funeral two days ago, and this person used to sit at your dinner table, 
and the next second he's sitting at your dinner table, I think you'd have a bit of an adrenaline rush, don't you think? It's like, wah! And then, of course, he walked with them to Emmaus, and, and he prays over the food, and they suddenly realize, goodness me, it's Jesus who's been talking to us for the last few hours, and then he vanishes out of their sight. And the next thing, he's back in Jerusalem. So he's like everywhere. And this is not science fiction. This is recorded in, in reliable historical documents. So if there's one place where we can see what the future world looks like, it's the phenomenon of the risen body of Jesus. Because Paul then goes on to explain that whatever his body was like, it is the prototype of the bodies we are going to get in a moment in the twinkling of an, an eye. And the older I get, the more this part of the gospel becomes important to me. Um, and, and, you know, I think we can pr pretty reasonably conclude that because this, Jesus, this happened to Jesus at the peak of life when he was about 30 years old, I'm not going to come back with this body you're seeing now. Uh, you'll see the body that I had when I was 30, and you will be ever so impressed. <laughs> All right. And so this, this changes our whole view of the life to come. A lot of Christianity thinks when we die, we're going to sort of go off into a spirit cuckoo land where we float around in the clouds and harps and things. And when you see me one day, I'll be like a cloudy substance with some eyes in the middle and I'll say, hello. <laughs> and uh, no, we are going to be re-embodied in the new earth renewed by God. See, it's totally different from just about every religious system in the world. The other thing about the resurrection of Jesus is that his life that has conquered death and is immortal is breathed into us by the power of the Holy Spirit in the born-again experience. So just a few key verses about this. This is absolutely crucial. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the risen Jesus. And, and the language that is used there in John's gospel is echoing Genesis 1 where God breathed into Adam and humanity was created. And what this is saying, and here is the new humanity being created. The beginning of a whole new species of human beings. And Peter says, this is how we are born again. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about how this actually communicates into us immortality. And so when you are born again, God births into you the new nature of the risen Jesus, restoring your humanity in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. And because of that, you can actually live substantially, defeating the power of sin. Because in union with Jesus, you died to your old life and you rose again and you can live in the power of the resurrection and you can become increasingly the new person that you are. You can put off your old self and put on this new self and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. You see, that's not just having your sins forgiven so that when you die, you can go to heaven. That's, you can start being a different person and so the whole thing about the new nature in Christ, it's a very important part of the gospel, and it really establishes my identity as a Christian. We live in a world where people are so messed up, uh, you know, social media and all that, they, they just have such low views of themselves, um, 
and there's, there's the whole growing phenomenon of teen suicide in the Western world. What a sad world we live in. But we can be a new person and have a very strong sense of identity. Because Jesus is alive in me. Whoa, man. I think we should have that one as well, don't you think? So, we're expanding this file a little bit. So, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we also need the ministry and message of Jesus before he even died on the cross. And so, you know, Jesus came, and the first time we hear the, the phrase good news, it's when he started his ministry, long before he died. And he came proclaiming the good news. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So the good news is that Jesus has arrived, and he's starting to do stuff. And he goes into the synagogue and he chooses this text from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim, proclaim good news, the gospel. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all about liberty. Jesus, the great liberator. And then he said, today, this is fulfilled. This is what I've come to do. And then he didn't just say it, he went around doing it. He came announcing the kingdom and demonstrating the kingdom. And so he started liberating people who were demonized and setting them free. He started healing sick people, sometimes hundreds of them, um, liberating them from sickness. He started forgiving sinners uh, and Cutting, you know, sort of bypassing the whole temple and sacrificial system and saying, no, I can give it to you right now. Let your sins be forgiven. He started welcoming those who were previously excluded in the religious system. Sinners, Gentiles, women, and children. He started welcoming them to his table. He started cleansing the ritually impure. So like where you weren't supposed to touch a leper because the leprosy could go up your arm and contaminate you, Jesus touched a leper and it was reverse contamination. His healing power cleansed the leper, you see. And those who felt untouchable in that society suddenly were touched by God. Isn't that wonderful? He started bringing justice to the poor and feeding them. He started... Ruining funeral services <laughs> and changing them to joy and jubilation. And he even started talking to nature, telling the storm to obey, talking to a fig tree. And all of it is to actually say, here is the beginning of the new creation. And so all of these things Jesus is doing, it's actually what the new world is going to look like. It's not that everybody is healed. It's not that everybody is raised from the dead. But you can see the beginning of what God's purpose for humanity is like when you watch Jesus moving. See? And the wonderful thing, not only is that this is the inauguration of the new creation, but Jesus is the same today. It says in Hebrews, yesterday and today forever, Jesus is the same. So you just heard that story, you know. He still heals. Doesn't heal everybody, but he still heals. He still drives out demons. He still forgives the sinners. 
He still welcomes the unwelcome. We need to be welcoming the unwelcome. And you still have stories of people brought back from the dead. I, I knew somebody, a great church planter and, elite and, and, and evangelist in South Africa, and, and dead people came back to life under his ministry. So, um, don't you think we need the good news that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He still does signs and wonders, and the gospel is a gospel that these gifts of power are still available to liberate humanity. So we're going to add that one. It's not just the death of Jesus, it's the death and resurrection and his message and ministry of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. But it's also the ascension of Jesus. And what happened at the ascension of Jesus? Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see and hear. His exaltation unleashed Pentecost and the Spirit of God came upon the church. And what is this for? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So it's, it's really important to understand that the day of Pentecost was not the day when the church was born again. The resurrection gives the new birth. They were already now people who were his people. But we cannot do the mission of reaching all nations if we don't have power. And so the power to witness was poured out upon them. And uh, if you read the day of Pentecost and you understand Luke's way of telling the story, Luke deliberately draws on the Old Testament uh, story of the Holy Spirit. And there's a clear kind of parallel with the Elijah-Elisha story, that as Elisha saw Elijah ascend, the anointing that was on Elijah came on Elisha, and he became a prophet, doing miraculous signs like Elijah had, because he became his successor by the transfer of the Spirit. And the whole way the story of Pentecost is told is that Jesus was a prophet doing signs and wonders uh, more than Elijah and Elisha as we've gone through all the things that he, he did. And as they saw him ascend, the anointing that was on Jesus was poured out on his disciples. So that now we as the church can announce and proclaim the kingdom of God like Jesus did. And so the gospel is that we are the good news. We are Jesus multiplied and replicated in this world, and we are this plague that is growing on planet Earth today. And so the good news gets better and better because we actually embody the good news. And if you just have a nostalgic gospel, it all happened, you know, when Jesus died and you believe that, but you don't have a prophetic gospel that God is busy changing the world through us, you know, you ain't got the whole gospel. So, this leads to the fact that we need the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ministry and message of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus. 
that unleashed the day of Pentecost. We need the whole Jesus. His whole story is the good news. And we need to have his whole story become part of us by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what we do when we do ministry time. We're basically massaging into people the whole Jesus, the whole gospel. So, this is part of the grand purpose of God in history. And the way the, 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 the Bible goes, it goes from the creation story to the other end, the new creation story, the new heaven and the new earth. And God's purpose in creation was supposed to be that us as his, his, his vice regents made in his image would rule creation on his behalf. But we messed up. I mean, just look at the planet today. And so he chose Israel to be his servant nation. And they messed up. And so the prophet said he would choose a remnant in Israel and they would be purified through the exile and they would represent God. But they messed up. Till eventually he chose one person who came as the son of man and the servant of Yahweh. That's a whole story. So the whole story of the Bible narrows down to Jesus who fulfilled all these purposes of God. And then from Jesus it goes outward. And these figures are very representative. He chose 12 disciples because he was reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the beginning of the new Israel. He sent 70 because that was the symbol in the Old Testament of all the nations of the earth. And so it was the new people of God to reach all the nations of the earth. And then on the day of Pentecost, there were 120. And in Judaism, that was the number needed to create a new Sanhedrin or ruling body. And so everything was in place for this new people of God. And then the Spirit of God came upon them. And then... 5,000, then, then more than you can count. And then the apostles go planting churches all around the ancient world. And within a few centuries, Christianity has taken over the Roman Empire. That's historical. All right. We are this plague, this holy plague. And we are now the church, and we are at this point in church history. Look at the arrow. Where through the gospel spreading to all nations and to the ends of the earth, we are bringing humanity back under the kingdom of God. And when we fulfill world missions, then there will be the new creation. So you see, this is not just that Jesus died so that I can have my sins forgiven, so that I can go to heaven when I die. No, no, no. This is God has a plan for this creation. God has a plan for humanity. And we are an absolutely vital part of that plan. That is the gospel. And so, my last slide. I've been thinking a lot about how can we define the gospel we preach in the vineyard, the kingdom of God gospel. And I'm just going to say, this is my, this is my take that I've come up with. What is the gospel? The whole gospel can be summarized in one sentence. God has come as he promised he would. See, through the whole of the Old Testament, there's this gigantic growing expectation. One day the kingdom of God will come. And prophet after promise, promising this day will come. And then Jesus comes, and God starts doing what he promised. He fulfills all of his promises. And what has God come to do? He's come to renew all things, including a renewed humanity in his image and a renewed creation big plan that God has. And 
How does God come to do that? He's come to do that by reestablishing his government. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's the coming of the kingdom of God that is the way God has come. And God has come to reign through Jesus, anointed by the Holy Spirit as the Messiah and King. Jesus embodies what God has come to do. And Jesus embodies that in his whole ministry. God has come to reign through the life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ the King. That's just what I've been telling you for the last 20 minutes, right? We need the whole Jesus, the whole story. And so he has come through his ministry, setting people free from all these forms of oppression. He has come through his death so that we can know that we don't have to face judgment. We already have passed from death to life. It's come through his resurrection so that we can see what our future looks like, but also we can start living that future now as his risen life is within us. He has come through his ascension, pouring out the Spirit upon us so that we can go and announce and demonstrate the kingdom to all nations until the end of the earth. And in the end, at the end of history, God will come. Scenes of the book of Revelation will take place to execute final judgment, raise the dead in Christ to eternal life, and create a new heaven and a new earth. And my word to you is, that's the gospel we preach. Let's preach that gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And as we preach that gospel, we fulfill God's purpose and grow and grow and grow like a holy plague upon this earth. So, won't you stand? I'm going to pray for you. Wilson, won't you come up here and just do whatever you want to do? Because I obey you. Um, let's just pray together. Lord, thank you for the witness of this church and the things you're doing, transforming it and equipping it and empowering it. And so, Lord, I just say to all these people here, receive the word of the kingdom. I bless you with the gospel of the kingdom. God, through these people, let your kingdom come and mightily use them to preach your gospel to the sad world all around them, empowered by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.